Good afternoon, and welcome to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. Over the next hour, you'll learn how to see your true self in the midst of life's twists and turns. You'll be challenged to think outside of the box when it comes to the mysteries of life. Now, here's your host, Andrea Matthews. Good afternoon, and welcome to the Authentic Living Show. You know, Many people out there right now are seeking a spiritual practice that offers real results, such as personal transformation or life change. Today, we're talking to Greg Marcus, Ph.D., practitioner and coach of American Musar. His book, The Spiritual Practice of Good Actions, Finding Balance Through the Soul Traits of Musar, will be the topic of our discussion as he leads us to understand some of the specific practices that are meant to bring everyday life into alignment with spiritual values. Musar is a thousand-year-old Jewish practice of spiritual growth based on mindful living. And Greg Marcus is a practitioner, facilitator, and innovator of American Musar, a 21st century spiritual practice for authentic and meaningful life. He earned a bachelor's in biology from Cornell University and earned his doctorate in biology from MIT. His first book, Busting Your Corporate Idol, Self-Help for the Chronically Overworked, is a five-star American Amazon excuse me, bestseller. Greg resides in San Francisco Bay Area with his wife, two daughters, and two cats. You can visit him online at www.americanmusar.com, and Musar is spelled M-U-S-S-A-R. So you want to be here today. This is going to be an interesting example of the implementation of spiritual practice. So welcome, Greg, to the Authentic Living Show. Well, thank you, Andrea. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, you're very welcome. So the first question right out of the box is, how in the world did you get from biology to Musar? Well, I, um, I'm a little bit of a serial reinventor. I started, um, I moved to California for a postdoc, and I thought I was going to be on a track to be a college professor, but then I ended up leaving my postdoc to go into the biotech industry, and from there, I pretty quickly moved into to product marketing and product management, where I did that for almost 10 years. And I was very passionate about it. I wanted to change the world. I wanted to make the world a better place. And I loved it so much that I became a workaholic, that I was working, I was working 90 hours a week. And I thought I had my dream life, you know, with a nice family, kids, great job. Um, I was moved up rapidly. And then things started to change for me. The product that I was working on, there was a very big public flop of the product and everybody blamed me. You know, all of the management, all of the customers, I, I you know, got um, a lot of heat at trade shows. I got, you know, publicly humiliated by a senior officer of the company at a company meeting. So lots of, um, lots of negative things happened. And it was on the, um, so with all of this going on, and then my grandmother passed away, so I was really pretty down. And I, I went to Yom Kippur services, which was, uh, this was nine years ago, so it's just, just, just recently passed. And as you may know, on Yom Kippur, um, we, uh, it's a Jewish Day of Atonement. Uh, we don't eat or drink for a day. We you know, often go to services and reflect on our lives. So it was about three in the afternoon. Uh, I was feeling a little, little tired and woozy, and... I looked down at the translation of what they were what they were reading, and these words jumped out at me: "Don't turn to idols or molten things." And so I was really, to be honest, pretty dismissive of that initially. I'm thinking, "Oh, it's that statue thing. Why are we still focusing on this today?" And then this phrase just popped into my head, 
which said, you know, you need to do what's best for the company. And that was kind of our ultimate rationalization for canceling projects and doing things that were unpopular. And I got a pit in my stomach and my hands got sweaty. And I realized that I had turned my employer into a false idol and that I... I decided that day I was tired of doing what was best for the company. I was going to start doing what was best for myself and what was best for my family. And within a year, I'd cut my hours by a third without changing jobs. A year later, I'd cut my hours by a third again. And this was all the basis of my first book, by the way, Busting Your Corporate Idol. And that started me walking this spiritual path. And it was a couple of years uh, later that I decided to leave the corporate world. I became a stay-at-home dad and a writer. And then I learned about Musar. And, and although I had learned a way to cut my hours and to stop working so much, it was Musar that really helped me understand why it was that I was driven to work all the time. Okay. Okay. So it got you, took you on the zigzag path to something, a uh, deeper part of yourself that you needed to find. Sorry, exactly. Andrea, I didn't quite, um, I have I a, a little it, hard time hearing your question there. Yeah, I said, so it got you on a zigzag path to get you where you uh, had to look a little deeper into yourself. Yeah, that's right. I had learned about um, Musar through a, uh, we, did, we decided not to send our kids to Sunday school. We did a family-based program instead, uh, which was on Saturday afternoons. And one of the years, one year the theme was on, was on Musar, which is this practice of, of looking within and finding what causes you to get stuck in the same place again and again. And it offers a step-by-step way towards uh, balance and healing. And it was through, it's a, it's a daily practice, and it was when I learned about this, I said, um, it really resonated with me because it was, so, uh, it was so practical, and it was grounded very much in uh, Jewish teachings and practice that goes back a thousand years, but it was so uh, easy to relate to because it's cultivating things like humility and order and patience and trust and all kinds of character traits that we live with, that we live with every day. Mm-hmm. Or not. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I really like the way you uh, did this in the book in a real simple way so that people can understand exactly what you're talking about. But before we go there, I want to hear this story. You started to tell me a story about your cousin Sandy and the definition of a mensch. Yeah, so my, um, my mother's cousin Sandy uh, died at the age of, of 82, and he was at home surrounded by his, uh, his wife and his children and his grandchildren. And we all loved and admired Sandy, not because he was a big business success or not because he was, uh, had an MIT degree. It's because he was a, a mensch, a person of outstanding character. And there's really three things that I can point to about Sandy that made him a mensch. You know, one is he was always there. Any kind of family event, whether it was a wedding, funeral, bar mitzvah, birthday party, you know, Sandy, Sandy showed up. You know, second, um, he never had a bad word to say about anyone. And third is he always had a sunny and positive disposition. You know, I went to visit him. It's in the middle of a recession in the 80s. He's already talking about how things are going to turn around and, you know, how, uh, you know, he's happy that the family was healthy. So 
What Mosar does and what I've, I've learned is that we all have the ability to be a match. You know, we all have this capability within us to be this kind of real pillar of the community. But what we lack is a, is a guideline and what we lacked is a, is a guidebook. And Mosar can serve as that, as that sort of a, as that sort of a manual. Okay. Okay. So that would explain why it's relevant today uh, as opposed to, you know, it's an old, old Jewish, uh, practice, but uh, it's still relevant today because it can help us find deeper soul meaning. Do I have that right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, you know, many things have changed in the last few thousand years in terms of our technology and our countries and our languages, but one thing that hasn't changed is the human soul. You know, our challenges, our souls, those things that drive us towards doing the right thing or the wrong thing, those are all very much, very much the same. And you can read passages from books written, you know, a thousand years ago talking about anger or other um, sorts of human emotions, which really resonate um, as much today as they did, um, as they did way back then. Right, right. So uh, I'm interested in the Musar definition of soul. Um, can you help us understand how that definition came to be? Yeah, so the, um, you know, the soul within the, the Jewish tradition, and I'm sure in, in, you know, many religious traditions, is something that people have tried to understand and figure out for thousands of years. But there's a couple important things that, that Musar teaches and wants us to focus on. You know, the first is is that, um, we don't have souls, uh, we are souls. You know, the soul is kind of the, the sum total of, of who we are. And when we act and when we do something, we can make changes within our, within our soul. And the, the second uh, important thing, and this is the one that's even more Musar specific, is instead of trying to understand the soul all at once, we focus on specific parts of the soul, which are called soul traits. So soul traits are things like you know, humility, patience, order, and having too much of a soul trait is just as bad as having not enough. And so when we focus on a soul trait for a couple of weeks, it's what one of my students calls extreme spiritual exercise. So instead of going to the gym and exercising all of our muscles at once, we sometimes go and we say, okay, today I'm just going to do my arms, and then tomorrow I'm just going to do my legs. So in a similar way, we just focus on working on specific parts of our soul. Okay. For periods of time, and then you move on to the next trait. Is that... Yeah, yeah. So, um, let's say, uh, you know, like right now, I'm, the soul trait that I'm working on is, is loving kindness, which is, which is doing things for other people without expecting anything in return. And so, if we have too little loving kindness, we can be... I'm very selfish and self-centered, but if we have too much loving kindness, then we could get taken advantage of, um, we might not be taking care of ourselves, we're so busy trying to take care of everyone else that we're not, you know, we're not giving ourselves what we need. Right, right, of course. Well, and these things are based on some, some basic assumptions. Um, can you tell us what those are? Yeah, so I um, so I wrote the book to make Musar um, accessible to a broader 
a much broader audience. And there's a big backstory. You know, there's a big backstory in, in Jewish teachings and in Musar teachings. And a lot of people, you know, may not be um, familiar with it. So rather than try to, you know, spend half the book teaching the backstory, I took a page out of my business background and I, I said, okay, well, if we're doing a, a business forecast, we would make assumptions, which would say maybe you agree with the assumptions, maybe you don't, but just if we sort of agree to believe in them, they can, they can help hold the, the practice together. So the, the first assumption is that uh, we all have a divine spark, but it's occluded by our baggage. So this is from the, the biblical teachings that mankind was created in God's image and not in a literal sort of semblance of God, but sort of on a, a spiritual level. And we all have this, this core of humanity, this core of goodness, um, whatever we may look like on the outside. And there's nothing anyone can do to take away from that. Uh, but we also have baggage. We have those hurts and disappointments that have happened in our lives, and our, our baggage gets in the way of the divine spark, and it prevents the light from getting out and, and shining through. So that's the, the first assumption. Um, let me just pause there and see if you had any, wanted to comment on that, or should I continue yeah, I to really, the next one? Yeah, I really like that one, and that's one of the things we talk a lot about here on the Authentic Living Show about the divine, what I call the divine self, you're calling a divine spark, same, same. Um, that that is, uh, it is very often that buried in the unconscious and and not as visible to us because we've got other things we've uh, put on top of it. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely, I, I completely can see that, and I'm sure that the people who've been consistently listening to our show can relate to that as well. Yeah, and then when we when we practice Musar, we kind of kind of thinking of it as move, moving the bags and letting the light shine through, mm-hmm. or changing our perspective. And sometimes, you know, we have trouble seeing our own light, and sometimes we have trouble seeing the the divine spark of other people, and we just immediately snap to judgments about other people and conclusions about them that that may not be true. And if we remember that they are all, you know, that one spark of common commonality that we all have. Um, it can help um, help lessen some of that judging behavior. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You also said that free will is a, a, a one of the uh, assumptions, that, but it's not always accessible to us. I'm interested in that. Yeah. So, um, so, so, what do I mean by that? So, okay. Well, in theory, I have free will, and I can make decisions about how I'm going to act. But when I look at myself as a parent, when my kids do something which bothers me, um, you know, some words are going to be out of my mouth before I even realize I've said them. Or, you know, I get angry at someone at work or, you know, something happens and boom, I've reacted. Now, in theory, I guess I had free will and I could have not done them, but it did, done that, but it sure didn't seem that way in the moment. I see. So, Part of what we're trying to do again with Musar is what Rabbi Pear calls increasing the distance between the match and the fuse, trying to have greater access to our free will so we can make, make more choices and avoid some of those, you know, digging ourselves a hole that we then have to work our way out of. Okay, yeah, I can see that. That makes perfect sense. Okay, and you also said that we all have these same soul traits. You mentioned that earlier as well. So this is not something that some people have and other people don't. 
Yeah, that's right. I mean, if you, you think of like what Musar would say is that, you know, you think of the person who's the least honest person you can think of. Well, they still have the sole trait of truth. Maybe it's just very out of balance. And so, um, or someone who's a miser, they still have the sole trait of generosity. It's just, it's just out of balance. And so this is very useful for us, too, because sometimes we, in our own self-image, you know, you say, well, I'm not a very nice person. I'm a real, real slob. I can't keep the house clean. And we say, well, no, you still have that sole trait of order, and we have the ability to change that. So we don't need to suddenly become a neat freak overnight, but we can step-by-step step make small changes um, to bring ourselves towards balance. Yeah, absolutely. And then we just have uh, just on a minute to talk about this before the break, but um, you also said that we're driven by a conflict between good and evil and inclinations. Can you say more about yeah, that? Yeah, the... Um, the evil inclination, that's um, translated from a Hebrew term. And evil, in English, we tend to think of like, you know, really diabolical evil or the ISIS or, you know, these, these kind of things. But really it's talking about, it's like our subconscious drives towards, you know, anger and selfishness and being self-centered. And um, it's what Sigmund Freud would call the id. So it's kind of that that balance between, you know, the... Uh, th- those sorts of impulses versus sharing with other people, forming connections. Um, okay. Okay. Well, that's a good. We'll we'll come back to that right after the break. We're going to take a break right now, and we'll be right back in just a minute with more from about American Bussar. The Voice America Seventh Wave Channel. When you learn to see things from a spiritual perspective, it changes the way you see virtually everything in your life. Listen for Dr. Paula Joyce and her program, Uplift Your Life, Nourishment of the Spirit. Our program will help you get rid of the negative aspects of your life and invite love, joy, and prosperity into your life. Turn that negative feeling into a positive one. Tune in to Uplift Your Life, Nourishment of the Spirit, every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America 7th Wave Channel. Do you just seem to be stuck in the same pattern over and over? Sometimes life seems to be about just spinning your wheels. It never has to be that way. Listen for Welcome to the Mosaic Garden with host Christy Ellen, the Mosaic Shaman. Mosaic art is a lot like pieces of our lives. They just need to be put back together, one piece at a time. You deserve to live a happy life. We hope you'll tune in. Welcome to the Mosaic Garden airs live every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America 7th Wave Channel. It's important to know as energetic beings how to feel grounded and healthy. We strive to help teach about the energetics within you and the world around you. Listen for Three Petals Healing with host Lauren Dillon Merrill. Through her experience and that of her guests, Lauren will bring you the support, encouragement, and knowledge to discover this every Wednesday at 12 noon Pacific Time and 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America 7th Wave Channel. The Voice America 7th Wave Channel. Seek greater awareness. The Voice America 7th Wave Channel. Be extraordinary. 
Be the change. Listening to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. We want to hear from you. If you have a question or comment about today's show, call in now, toll free, 1 866 472 5795. That's 1 866 472 5795. You can also send your questions or comments by email to Andrea at andreamatthews.com. Now, back to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. And we're back with Greg. Uh, Greg Marcus and the study of the American Musar. Uh, but before we talk any more about that, I want to tell you a little bit more about some things that are going on on Super Soul Sunday and on OWN. If you missed the final episode of Super Soul Sunday on the 23rd of October with Grammy and Academy Award winner, winning singer and songwriter Carol Bayer Sager, you want to go to www.supersoul.tv to see full-length episodes of the show at any time. You can watch that show, which was an excellent show, or any of the other shows from the season that began on August the 7th and ended on August, uh, uh, excuse me, October 23rd. You can watch them all full-length at any time. So I would encourage you to do that. These are real sh- uh, shows that really are mind-expanding. Also, the Oprah Winfrey Network will be airing a new original 10-part docu-series called The Hero Effect from Dolphin Entertainment and the United Way. The series will premiere on November the 12th with two 30-minute episodes airing monthly on Saturdays from 10 to 11 Eastern and Pacific. The series is co-hosted by Donald Driver, NFL Super Bowl champion, and uh, was also on Dancing with the Stars, and actress advocate Emily Wilson, who was on the newsroom, and Castle. Presented by United Way and produced by Dolphin Entertainment, The Hero Effect is an uplifting docu-series that brings to life the stories of ordinary individuals who are making extraordinary differences in their communities. Shot on location in 10 different communities across the country, each episode will celebrate everyday heroes that facilitate beneficial, life-changing impact on the people around them. The heroes featured in the series were identified in part through nominations from 1,200 local United Ways across the country. Each episode concludes with a call to action encouraging viewers to visit www.heroeffect.com and connect with their local United Way or other community-based organizations to create positive change. So this is kind of a a real powerful show that means to bring positive change to our communities, which we definitely need. So I would encourage you to check that out on OWN on beginning on November the 12th uh, at 10 and 11 Eastern Pacific. Okay, so we're talking today to uh, Greg Marcus about his book on the um, American Musar. The book is called Spiritual Practice of Good Actions, Finding Balance Through the Soul Traits of Musar. And what we were talking about just before the break was this whole idea of good, good versus evil. Um, as a part of the co- the uh, the assumptions on which the your work is based, and you said that this work is driven by a conflict between good and evil inclinations, and I, uh, so I want you to fill in the blanks here. But I want to tell our listening audience that you know you've heard me talk a lot about uh, the transition from good evil to true and false, and a way to look at this is to say I can either do what's true in my soul, or I can falsify that information and do something false um, that doesn't really come from my soul. So that's one way to look at it. But I want you to sort of fill in the blanks there, Greg, if you will, about what your beliefs are about that. Yeah, you know, I like, um, I like the, the framework that, that you're 
describing to your, your listeners because it really highlights the fact that we have choices. And that's one of the big Musar concepts as well. It's something that uh, Rabbi Eliyahu Dessler really wrote a lot about in the early 20th century in England. And it's this idea that, you know, for some parts of our life, we're, you know, we're just going to kind of automatically do the right thing. We're not going to think about it. You know, we stop at the stop sign or whatever, or we open the door for somebody if that's our habit. You know, and in other areas, um, you know, we're just going to kind of automatically not do the best thing. You know, we just... Uh, you know, we don't pay attention when somebody's talking to us and, you know, whatever that may be. But where it gets really interesting is, is these choice points where we can say, you know, you know, I can follow, you know, the, the truth of my soul or I can follow the good inclination or I could, um, or I could, I could do the more selfish thing or the self-centered thing um, and follow the other inclination. And, you know, the whole idea of having a spiritual practice for good actions is, is we can choose. And by making um, the choices in, you know, it's like it is a practice. So when we practice in ordinary situations, when like the big test arrives, when like something really, you know, a crisis hits, we're going to be ready to show up in a better way because we've practiced and exercised those spiritual muscles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I want to go back uh, to what you said about free will as well. I really liked what you said there about create, creating a space between, what was it, the match and the something else. Yeah, the space said. between the match and the fuse, absolutely. Fuse, yeah, the fuse. Yeah, I couldn't remember that. Um, and I like Marcus that because... Marcus we have fuses. We tend to go boom a little bit. That's kind of how I was raised. We're a family where people go boom and they get mad. And so finding ways to kind of slow that down has been an important part of of my spiritual growth. Yeah, and it goes along really well with something that Carl Jung said, um, and we've talked a lot about his work on the show as well. He talked about holding the tension between the two opposite drives or two drives within us and, and to just be present in that space between the two long enough to figure out what you really want to do. And I think that's very similar to what you're talking about, and it offers us a chance to, like you said, choose. So that's really cool. Yeah, absolutely. I had um, something like that happen recently where I was dealing with something with one of my kids and, you know, teenagers are, they like deal with things in their own way and their own time. And, and so I really had to like sit there and say, okay, I have to let her work this out. I have to hold on to my own discomfort because if I just kind of jump in and start offering solutions here, you know, she's not going to listen. It's not going to serve her well. And so, yeah, and I had to kind of sit with that discomfort a little bit. Yep, yep. That's a big part of parenting, learning to sit with our own discomforting. It's got discomfort, I mean, yeah. Okay, so let's talk about some of these traits. I want to start with humility because that's one of the ones that seems mysterious with regard to how one would develop humility. We don't want to be humiliated or shamed, but we do want to develop humility. So can you talk Mm -hmm. some about that? Yeah, so this is one of the areas where, um, you know, so humility and Musar, it's not kind of our sort of uh, Western English definition where we tend to think about being, you know, super meek or humiliation. And humility and Musar, it's about finding like your right place in the world. It's finding the balance between being, you know, really meek and self-effacing and, and arrogance. And having too little humility and being arrogant 
is is this you know is is a destructive habit, but also just being a doormat doesn't doesn't do the world any good either. And I've had a lot of students who are like they're in a in a job and they're afraid to speak up, and they've realized, okay, I have too much humility here. I'm you know as part of my role, I need to answer some questions. I need to ask questions. I need to take responsibility for what's happens in my department, and so I need to step up and be a little bit bigger. And other people are just like, oh, geez, you know, I'm always, you know, micromanaging people, and I'm always, you know, have to be the first one to speak. And so uh, learning how to take that step towards balance um, is a key, a key part of the practice. Yeah. Yeah, so that balance is what you're looking for. And I like the definition there that it's not, it, uh, that, that you're not trying to, um, go into humiliation because a lot of times people think that humility and humiliation are the same thing so I'm glad you clarified that um, you want to talk about patience that's one that everybody has a lot of hard hard time with you yeah you know included. it's um, it's funny the, the Hebrew word for patience is um, it, it literally translates as like the guy who carries your bags in Israel <laughs> Like, or it's about bearing a burden, or it says in the Bible that, you know, God and Moses delivered the Israelites from, you know, bearing the burden of slavery. And so it's mm-hmm. kind of like what we were talking about in that example before, when I was kind of had to just kind of bear the discomfort of that moment. It's really having the strength to bear in an uncomfortable situation. So if you're the kind of person who doesn't get stressed out by traffic and you're in a total traffic jam, you don't need, need any patience. But if you're a kind of a, a rageaholic and you're, you know, shouting at other drivers or doing, you know, uh, that, that sort of thing, then that's where you really need to be able to invoke, invoke patience. Can I, can I share a story about one of my students? Sure. Please do. Yeah. So she was from, uh, she was from the, from Chicago and was very, aggressive kind of, you know, curse at everybody sort of driver as she describes herself. And so for patients, she said, okay, I'm going to, the thing I'm going to do to develop my patience is I'm going to let every car go in front of me. So anyone wants to merge, anyone's even close, I'm just going to let all the other drivers uh, go by. And she said that in two weeks, she was completely transformed. She was now the politest, she called herself the politest driver in California. She was calm and relaxed when she was driving, and she felt that translate over into other parts of her life as well. Uh, because when we make, each time we, we practice patience, each time we do one of these small things, we leave a small trace or imprint on our soul. And so then when the soul begins to change, then suddenly uh, we find ourselves acting very differently um, in all kinds of situations. Okay. So can you give a similar example for humility? Yeah, so for humility, um, like one uh, example, um, you know, again, has to do with, let's say you're in a, it depends on how often you speak out. Like if you're in a business meeting and you're always the kind of person that has to talk a lot and you always have to ask the first question or maybe you always have to sit in the front row or wear the flashiest clothes, you know, for you it would be, okay, I'm going to take a little bit of a step back and draw less attention to myself. I'm going to let someone else ask the first question. 
Um, but if you're, you know, kind of on the the meek side or the, the the other side, then you know maybe your task is to ask a question. And if you're too nervous about asking in front of other people, maybe the right step for you is to go up like after the meeting or go in private and ask your question. So you're literally trying to put yourself in a position of, uh, you know, I think of it a little bit like a seesaw where not enough humility or too much humility are on either sides of the post and you're kind of standing in the fulcrum and trying to balance those two out a little bit. So yeah, that, absolutely. I mean, if you think about like, you know, you ever meet someone who's really arrogant and they kind of imagine them walking into the party and they're talking loudly and they're talking about how great they are. And then, you know, maybe you have someone else who walks into the party who's talking about how whole everybody's against them and, you know, life has been so unfair and all these things that have happened to them. You know, they both make it all about them. They just are so self-centered that, you know, both of them are out of balance. And what you need to do is, yeah, you know, taking care of ourselves is important, but if we don't ever notice the rest of the world, that's a problem. Mm-hmm. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, one of the other ones that I think people have a hard time with is trust. Um, that's, a, that's a difficult one. How do we trust other people? Do we trust ourselves? Do we trust uh, our higher power? However, we see that. What you know? How do we do that? How do? What would be some practice? What do you mean by trust, and what would be some practices that we need to? Yeah. Implement? So trust. Um, trust is short for trust in God, and for those people that are unsure about the divinity, you can think of it really as just trusting in the universe or trusting that most things are going to work out. You know, Mark Twain once said that some of the worst things that ever happened to me. Uh, actually occurred. You know, we create all these worries in our head about what, what, um, what, uh, you know, what, um, what might happen. And then, uh, you know, none of them, none of them ever do. So the, um, when we practice Musar, we start with a, uh, with like a little mantra that we say in every morning. So like one that I like for trust is, you know, trust in God, but lock your bike. You know, how is it that, you know, we need to trust that most things are going to work out, but we have to kind of do, do our, our part as well. So um, what are some uh, trust practices? Well, I mean, one, one thing that can be useful is actually to do some meditation, you know, even for just a couple of minutes, just um, trying to give yourself a little bit of, wor- of a worry break to just tell yourself that most things are going to work out. Um, and if, if you're on the other end of the spectrum, it might be stepping up and, and taking some action and taking some, some responsibility to, to do your own part. Yeah, that old thing, and uh, we just have a couple more minutes before we take a break again, but that old thing of, uh, of trust in, in the divine, however way you see that, would, you know, it's like there's one of the questions that comes up, and you address this in the book really well, about how, you know we ask questions like how would how would a God allow the Holocaust to happen or how could God have allowed you know uh, other genocides to happen how how could a God let a child be born with a, a a disability you know those kind of questions that come to mind with regard to trust and I I I, I want to ask you about that and how you sort of help people resolve those kind of questions. Yeah, those are, um, 
those those are the hard ones, and for many people, because of that, they say, "Oh well, you know, yeah, I can't, I can't really get get behind God because of these things." But you know, again, it comes back to the issue of free will. You know, I once asked one of my students, "Well, would you want to live in a world where there was no Holocaust and and God had prevented it?" And she was like, "Yes, yes." And then someone else said, "But." You know, how would God do that? Would God have changed the hearts of people? Would God have changed people's minds? And um, then, you know, without without giving people free choice, you know, we don't, that's not the world we live in. Yeah, reality. Yeah, that 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 whole thing has a lot of power to, to transform. Just that one thing, I think, has a lot of power. That whole idea of God allowing, what does that mean? And, you know, God... God you know, God allowed the Holocaust, and what would he have had to, he or she it had to do to 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 stop it? That whole thing, um, yeah, that does make us really begin to think about what we, how we, what is our real image of the divine? Um, yeah, and my personal image is that God works through people, and there were an awful lot of people who worked together to end the Holocaust. There were a lot of other people who had to call on the divine for courage and for strength to get through the terrible ordeal of, you know, all of our soldiers and soldiers from around the world who who stepped up to um, to fight against that. Yeah, absolutely they did. A whole lot of people caused it, a whole lot of people ended it. All right, we're going to take another break now, and we'll be back in just a few minutes uh, with some more about America Musar. This is the Voice America 7th Wave Channel. Sit back, relax, breathe. Reconnect to the still, small voice within. Take the time to make a weekly visit to the sounds of the heart with host Sandy Goldstone. This unique program will help you cultivate and strengthen your heart's connection and feel love, beauty, and joy. You don't need to fear or suffer. Heed the call. Say yes to living from the heart's truth. Tune in live every Tuesday at 5 p.m. U.S. Pacific Time on the Voice America 7th Wave Channel. Join the evolving consciousness of humanity. Broaden your mind. Open your heart for a greater understanding of how to express your pure and authentic nature. Tune in and turn on 1111 Talk Radio. Simron. Author, publisher, and life mentor broadens minds and opens hearts to a greater understanding of life, consciousness, and humanity. 1111 Talk Radio is every Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America 7th Wave Channel. 1111 Talk Radio. You are not on a journey. You are the journey. You are experience experiencing itself. Being here with Ariel and Shia Kane is an ordinary person's guide to modern-day enlightenment. This show is an exciting exploration which opens the door to living in the moment. Don't miss being here. Tune in every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 noon Eastern with Ariel and Shia Kane, right here on the 7th Wave Network. Be visionary. This is the Voice America 7th Wave Channel.
listening to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. We want to hear from you. If you have a question or comment about today's show, call in now, toll free, 1-866-472-5795. That's 1-866-472-5795. You can also send your questions or comments by email to Andrea at andreamatthews.com. Now, back to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. And we're back talking today to Greg Marcus, who has written a book um, entitled The Spiritual Practice of Good Actions, Finding Balance Through the Soul Traits of Musar, a Jewish practice of, that is very, very old, but he has uh, applied it to the American, um, made it into American Musar, a 21st century spiritual practice for authentic and meaningful life. So we were talking about uh, this whole, uh, some of the traits and uh, practices, but before we do any more of that, I want to ask you, Greg, if you will, to tell our listening audience how they can get in touch with you and anything else that you want to share with them. Sure. So a great place to uh, get in touch with me is on my website, AmericanMusar.com. That's American, M-U-S-S-A-R.com. And, uh, you know, as we've been talking about, the key to, to Musar is, is, is acting. It's taking small actions in everyday life, and it's this framework of looking at these different soul traits and figuring out where you sit between too little and too much for each one. So I have a special offer. I have an online class. It's called the American Musar Cycle. It's looking at 13 soul traits over 13 weeks, and it'll give you a little bit of a flavor and a chance to give it a try and to get to know yourself better. So um, the list price for this class is $36, but I am offering it to this audience at this special price of just 99 cents. And the reason is I really like the kind of uh, inclusive way that uh, Andrea and the authentic living community sort of are open to lots of different flavors of spirituality. And so if you're interested in in checking this out, you can go to AmericanMusar.com slash authentic living. Okay, thank you very much for making that offer. So that's a real big discount, and uh, I'm sure the listening audience will appreciate that. Okay, so let's talk a little bit more about the traits and um, the practices. Um, One of those that I'm real interested in is truth. Can you say something about that trait? Yeah, so truth, um, yeah, truth is a really, really interesting one, you know, especially at this time in our, our country. And part of the understanding of truth is that, you know, no one person has a monopoly on truth. You know, if if two people are in a room, they're going to walk out each with their own version of what happened. And, you know, yeah, I guess if you had like a perfect recording device, you could see exactly what was said and exactly who was there. But we're human. Our memories are imperfect. And so it's learning to appreciate like multiple perspectives on truth. It's like this is what... You know, I believe and I, I need to be open to understand what, what someone else's perspective is. So our mantra for truth is um, distance yourself from falsehood because it can be relatively easy to find something that's false, but exactly what's true, well, Musar would teach that only God sits on the throne of truth. And if you're not sure about the divinity, then maybe that's the universe or it's something else. But from our human perspective, um, we can never be really sure that we know all of the information. Yeah. 
Yeah, so that uh, resting with mystery, sort of le- what I call leaning into mystery a little bit, that we we allow room for to to not know, allows us to be more in the line in alignment with truth. Is that what you're saying? Uh, yeah, yeah. And um, I had kind of an interesting, you know, reaction when I first learned about the soul trait because. You know, this is one where classically I, I sort of used to think, well, the more truthful I am, the better. But Mustar would say that if you're too truthful, you can be unkind. And actually, some of the meanest things you can ever say to someone are things that are, that are true. You know, you, or as uh, my rabbi once said, there can only be one correct answer to these, do these pants make me look fat? You know, it's... Um, it's, it's so I realized that I had, was doing myself and other people a disservice by just being so blunt and direct. And sometimes it's, you know, we don't need to give the complete truth if it's really going to hurt someone else's feelings. Besides, all we have is our own perception of truth anyway, so how do we know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's a famous teaching by Rabbi Hillel, who um, you may have seen. His, uh, you still there? Yeah, I'm here. Yeah, okay. Sorry, I just hit a button on my phone. Where he used to teach that, you know, you should always say that a bride is beautiful at a wedding. And, um, you know, so other people would say, well, you know, what if you don't think she's beautiful or whatever? But the, the bottom line is that a wedding is a time of joy. And whatever your opinion is about how the bride looks or about how the groom looks or their taste in tablecloths or whatever, it can really take away from the, uh, from the joyous nature of that of that occasion. So we should keep our negative comments to ourselves and we should proactively look for ways to pay compliments and to add to the joyousness of the occasion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and and I think also too much truth can, can get us in trouble with regard to, um, you know, I've, I've known some people who would go and confess to a boss that they made a mistake, that the boss didn't really even care about it all anyway, but they did that long enough till the boss said, no, I don't want you working here anymore. You're making too many mistakes, you know. So, you know, it was not necessary for them to go and tell that truth on themselves, and they sort of self-sabotaged by doing that. And so that kind of thing can happen as well. Yeah, that's a great example. I Like the boss didn't even know or didn't even care, and um, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I like the the idea of the relativity of truth with regard to perception. You know, if we're perceiving something that may or may not be somebody else's perception, how do we know that it's really true um, in a sort of, uh, you know, conti- uh, universal way? So That's I- right. There's, um, there's kind of a, another really important soul trait is, is honor which is honoring the divine spark in other people. And one of the teachings for honor is there's always another side to the story. Yeah. You know, like you might think that, you know, someone did this and that. Like I had a situation where someone had promised to talk, tell about my book and their email list to their subscribers, and it, they didn't include it. And so I concocted all these stories in my head about this, that, and the other thing that happened. And so I wrote a very polite email and said, oh, did you change your mind? Do you have any feedback for me? And, you know, they wrote back and said, oh, I forgot. Sorry. You know, it was a really busy time. I'll put it in the next one. So, you know, and if I had allowed my truth to kind of pollute that interaction, then my relationship with that person would have been damaged. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. 
There's a lot of people doing gratitude practices now, can, uh, and, and yours is, is kind of similar to other people's, but not exactly the same. So can you say something about that one? Yeah, so gratitude is a wonderful, is a wonderful practice because it's about really appreciating what we have. Um, you know, I did something which is similar to a lot of other gratitude practices where at the beginning of the year I sat and for 15 minutes I wrote down everything that I was, I was grateful for. Now, part of what Musar teaches is you need to be grateful for the bad things that happen too. You know, it might be, you know, you think of it as finding the silver lining, but, um, you know, like I share a story in the book that my, uh, my father uh, was in the Air Force in the early 60s and he was in a navigator training and he flunked his final exam and washed out of the Air Force. And he was really devastated by that. But... If he had stayed in the Air Force, he would have ended up in Vietnam. Mm. So it turns out that something that was a huge disappointment turned out to be, you know, could literally have, have saved his life. Yep. So so many things that, you know, we get fired from a job and we get an even better job or, you know, we get to spend more time with our family. So it's finding ways to be grateful for, you know, whatever, whatever happens. Yeah. And what do you think that does for us? to be grateful for whatever happens. It, um, it's very freeing. Like after I, after I did this 15-minute gratitude exercise, I was like I was walking on air for like almost a week afterwards. I just felt so calm and confident. And I said, you know, and I have so much to be thankful for in my life. You know, just all these little things just never really bothered me. Any, didn't really bother me. Uh, because I just felt confident and secure that that I had so much. Yeah, I, I really think that it, what, there's a kind of surrender that happens in, in gratitude where you're not saying life has to go my way. You sort of take life on life's terms instead of pushing it into, you know, trying to insist. I think we can have little temper tantrums at the divine, <laughs> you know, by you've got to get it my way, you've got to get it my way. When really... Uh, we don't know what the real truth is. There's a mystery there. So, yeah, I think you're right. I think it does make uh, make for life make life a lot lighter. And there is that surrender that just says, "Okay, whatever. I'm 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 here and I'm in the flow." You know, surrender is a wonderful a wonderful term, and I write about it in in terms of the soul trait equanimity because it is the ability to just kind of stand back and to to surrender for whatever is going on right now. And um, you know, there's a uh, one of my teachers, Alan Marinus, writes uh, this famous teaching. It's like, you know, we're sort of looking through the keyhole into a room and we get a little glimpse of something, but we don't really know what's happening in the rest of the room. And so some people interpret that as, you know, we don't know what the universe has in store for us. We don't know what, what the divine is unfolding. And we just have our little glimpse. And so having trust that things are going to work out, being grateful for the things that we have, um, these can really give us much, much peace of mind and, and live a much richer and more fulfilling life. Yep, absolutely, absolutely. And you, uh, I want to talk about um, fear, awe, and majesty because that's one of the, awe of majesty. Excuse me, because that's one of the things that I think would be probably the hardest to develop uh, in one way, and yet an easy thing in another way. So, can you say something about that? Yeah, it's. Um, it's one, one of the changes I made from classic Musar practice. There's this Hebrew word 
that means either fear or awe. And so a lot of times when you read a translation of the Bible, it'll say fear of God, and it could also be translated as awe of God. And it's just really a a reverence for the, the mystery of the universe. You know, it's almost like when you have a, a child who's, you know, five, six, and they, like, are so amazed that there's a sprinkler that's there every three feet. Like, there's another one, Mom, and there's another one. And, and it's just really um, kind of getting in touch with, with the coolness of the universe. I mean, there's uh, the Baal Shem Tov, a very famous uh, rabbi, said there's, there's miracles in front of us all the time, but we put our small hands in front of our eyes and don't see them. And it's opening ourselves up to the, to the miracles of the world. And it's, it, it can be hard. You know, sometimes it's hard and sometimes it's easy. But finding ways to cultivate that um, is incredibly empowering. Yeah, I think that sort of goes along with what you said about equanimity, surrender, and also with gratitude that we can, we can, I mean, it seems to me that we could develop more all by practicing gratitude and equanimity as well. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, as I explained earlier in the show, you know, all these different soul traits, they're just little subsets of the soul. So all of the, all, they're all interconnected. And, um, yeah, so absolutely. And, Feeling that that power of of awe can just be a source of of strength and energy to get through uh, some difficult times. To just remember that there is something bigger that's out there. That we can ask for help. That we can, you know, that that there are benevolent things, benevolent people that are that are always there to help us. Yeah, and you know, one of the things nature does that for me. I I can uh, I can be troubled about something and driving in my car home from work or something like that, and and look up at the sky and just immediately fall into that place where I recognize how small I am and how insignificant the the problems really are, and how uh, how bigger the universe is, and how I'm held and contained by the divine, and it really does open up that place of all for me so I really appreciate you being here today Greg it's been a really wonderful um, conversation that we've had and I hope that our listening audience will uh, go to your website and uh, take advantage of the uh, the practices there so thank you for being on the show I appreciate it well thank thank you so much Andrew it's been a true pleasure all right all right and we're going to be back again next week with more from Authentic Living, and remember your job, should you choose to accept it, is to give birth to yourself. Thanks again for listening to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. Join us again next Wednesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern Time, here on the 7th Wave Network. We'll talk again next week.